With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, been way too long since we've had her on. She's super sharp. She is the assistant professor of economics up at Seton Hall. That's a Big East school, which we miss greatly because I don't like the Big 12s, a West Virginia guy. But we are thrilled to talk again to Danielle Zanzalari. How are you, ma'am? Great to see you again. I'm good. How are you doing? Fantastic. Can't complain one little bit. Who's got it better than us? We get to sit around and talk about stuff. That's not too bad a gig, huh? I agree. You've got a piece out in uh, real clear markets. I love the angle on this. Let's start big picture with the buzzwords because I love to attack buzzwords because people just buzzword everything anymore. We we get inundated, especially in election season. We just all saw commercials about this for the election. Main Street versus Wall Street, right? Like there's all the people in the stock market and then there's all the right. The problem with it is that ain't true because consistently from 1991 to 2021, the last data we got, it bounces around a little bit, but between 55 and 60% of Americans have some kind of stock or some kind of something. And then if you want to include passive stock like IRAs and 401ks, that number goes up even higher. That trope just doesn't hold true, does it? That it's stock market versus you know regular people on Main Street versus Wall Street. It's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? I agree. It's much more complicated than the uh, Main Street, Wall Street. It also tries to have this dichotomy that you're either or and you can't be both. And you talk about that a little bit, but let's get an elephant out of the room right now. People think of that don't invest, and even some people that do invest, the smart investors anyway, they think of the stock market as being risky or a risk or dangerous. And we're now living in the paradigm of we just had things like the FTX debacle where the new Bitcoin stuff collapsed very spectacularly. and It's going to be a messy story for a long time. The truth of the matter is, other than three or four times in the last hundred years, which granted it was really bad, stock market is pretty stable stuff. Yes, uh, investing is kind of the the ticket to retirement. It's hard to put money under your uh, mattress or in a bank, earning very little interest, and and hope to retire with. Especially with the way inflation's been going, uh, invest. Uh, if you invest in S and P five hundred from nineteen seventy to twenty twenty, the average return was about ten percent a year. So if you do nothing over a long period of time, you can end up doing quite well in the stock market. Yeah, Danielle Zanzalari joining us, economist, explaining this stuff so well, even I can understand it. So that begs the question and kind of the core of where your piece is going to go here, though, is even though anybody can buy a stock, theoretically, there's still some gatekeeping involved here. There's some regulatory things to hear. It's not just money. Somebody that has 10 or $20 in their pocket just going and buying a stock. And that's kind of where you start with this piece and your take of, hey, if this is the path to financial freedom, financial independence, especially retirement type stuff, we want as many people as possible doing this, but the system isn't really set up to help that, is it? Correct. So as of right now, there's a definition called accredited investor. And so the SEC makes a rule that says, unless you make more than $200,000 a year, or $300,000 a year with a spouse, or have a net worth over a million dollars, or have a specialty financial trading, 
um, kind of certificate, Series 7, 65, or 82, unless you have those things, you can't invest in a lot of uh, a, a lot of deals. So, for example, if you want to be a partial owner of a very big apartment complex, well, unless you are an accredited investor, you can't do that. So unless you have $100 million and you can do this on your own, likely you're going to have to kind of be partaking in a small investment with a number of other investors. But actually, the SEC says you can't do that unless you are wealthy. Uh, and, and the reason that they say, and this is their actual wording, it is they want to ensure that all participating investors are financially sophisticated and able to fend for themselves or sustain the risk of loss. Well, I mean, that sounds great on paper, but the problem with it is, is the things you just laid out, you know, 200,000 a year or 300,000 with a spouse, got to be under network 1 million. That's 90% of Americans. So you're, you know, you talk about the 1% or the 10% wealthiest. This is literally the 10% wealthiest now, if you have this standard. Yeah. And, and the thing that the SEC is say, saying they want to prevent is people from losing their money. They They want you to be financially sophisticated to invest in this. But their definition actually has nothing to do with understanding finance. They're basically saying the wealthy is financially sophisticated and the middle class and lower class are financially stupid. And we know that's not all the case, right? You could be a 21-year-old college kid with an excellent like software engineering background in tech, and you, maybe you make $200,000 or more your first year. Does that person have a much more financially sophisticated background? The SEC under this rule would say yes, even though maybe someone who's like 45 have been budgeting and investing for 20 plus years and, and able to, to live and invest not financially sophisticated because their income is not over $200,000. So their definition here uh, is pretty gatekeeping, as you said earlier, and it, you know, it's not really getting at the root of the problem. If they're really trying to be benevolent and, and care about investors and want them to actually be financially educated, then that's what they should be doing, financially educating them, not prohibiting them from experiencing things because they're not wealthy. Right. Danielle Zanzalari joining us. This regulation D thing, though, because this gets into some nomenclature, so we don't lose anybody. So let's do the nomenclature real quick. This regulation D affects how banks and credit unions classify the accounts. The problem here is this is actually a very old regulation. It is periodically updated. It had a major revision in 2013. Recently, the Federal Reserve Board did kind of tweak this a little bit because they acknowledged, look, COVID, COVID-19, we need to look at this again. What is it about this regulation D? I know we talked about kind of the gatekeeping aspect of it. What is it and why does it need to be tweaked so much, do you think? Well, there's kind of a lot of subsets under regulation D. So um, it's it's probably too much to actually talk about just all at once. But there's a lot of rules kind of protecting the consumer or so to speak, protecting the consumer under regulation D, uh, what banks are and are not allowed to do. And so um, this tends to be a big focal point. I mean, one of the main points in my particular article that you referenced is that um, one of the House Republicans, Patrick McHenry, who's on the House Financial Services Committee, he mentioned prior to the election that, you know, he wanted to expand the accredited investor definition to include, include more people. So, you know, what I would like to see is, you know, let anybody invest. It's their money. Um, you know, we don't need the government to to tell people what they're allowed to do or allowed to risk for an investment, or at least I'd like to see a little bit more freedom in that that aspect. 
But what they're proposing is that anyone who invests over 10% of their annual income or net assets, then they could be allowed to do these things. And just to give you like a sense of what some of these investments are, um, like I said, it's hotels, offices. For example, my husband and I are officially an accredited investor. So we went through a platform called CrowdStreet. It's a real estate crowdfunding platform and they offer deals from these mega real estate companies that are huge names, you might know of them. And we own a partial, a bit of a hotel, a little sliver of a hotel in Dallas. Now, we are not wealthy enough to afford an entire hotel, but we can contribute some money towards this hotel and have a sliver of that. With the way the S&P 500 and the stock market in general is doing this year, it's not doing quite well, but real estate has been doing quite well. And this is a way for us to kind of help out our returns. But the problem is everyday people can't do this unless their income's over those thresholds or they have more assets or they have some sophisticated financial licensing. And so you're leaving out people who could maybe invest in this that, that otherwise can't because of this definition. And for example, uh, my husband and I are considering a deal right now for an office in Miami. Now, again, we're very small time investors, but it, it allows us to get exposure to real estate that we might otherwise not get. Danielle Zanzalari joining us. You mentioned it in your piece. I think the definitions have changed some too, and the regulations aren't keeping up because like real estate syndicate, ooh, that sounds kind of scary. But if you and a couple neighbors want to go in on the junk house in the neighborhood and fix it up and flip it and turn it out, guess what? You're a syndicate now. That market has drastically changed the last 10. Look, HGTV's printing money off flipping houses right now. That has changed drastically. Startup companies is specifically mentioned in this regulation. How much has startup companies changed in the internet era the last 10, 15, 20 years where you can literally start a company from your cell phone if you really want to get ambitious about it? How much of this is just kind of regulation creep and the technology and the environment and the culture has changed so much faster that this is not only, you know, not applicable, it's almost archaic. It definitely is archaic because you know, you're not letting anybody get in on startup companies. That would be a violation unless you're an accredited investor. Even if you knew the person really felt like that business was sound. Again, the SEC is saying you're not sophisticated enough to invest in this because your income's too low. And it does not matter if you really genuinely understand finances and you want to invest in this. You brought up the you brought up the FTX scandal kind of before. I'm calling it a scandal because it's it's fraud. Uh, it seems pretty clear to say it's fraud and not just mismanagement of investing. It's fraud. Um, you know, there's pretty limited rules to crypto. I'm not saying that they there needs to be a ton, but there's not many. And um, and I think that's because it's new and the government tends to run slow. I do think that there'll be an onslaught of, of regulation now. But the, the important thing is there's always rules to protect investors. You can't fraud investors. You can't lie about what you're doing with the money. You have to have sound investor reports and back that up. That's true with real estate deals. That's true with... Um, you know, a CPG company that's on the stock market. It's true with even crypto. You cannot fraud investors. Those rules already exist, even for the most infant industries like crypto. So 
you know, you don't necessarily need to prevent people from themselves and their investing. Uh, you have kids now losing money in crypto. That's not prevented, but you're preventing them from losing possibly money on likely more sound real estate deals or startup deals than in uh, some other industries. Yeah, Danielle Zanzalari joining us. It's almost a, a you know written in stone politically, especially in on the right and folks that are on the right in the media about you know picking and choosing winners and losers, and that's become part of the parlance in economics, especially conservative economics, supply side economics, whatever you want to call it. The problem here is, like you said, the SEC wealthy equals financially sophisticated, and if you don't have a certain amount of wealth, then you're not smart enough to invest. That's quite to the point picking and choosing winners and losers here. I get that there should be some governmental control of like, you know, if you want to set a percentage of income, if you're under a certain thing, okay, fine. 10% is the number you threw around on part of this. Fine. But at some point, where do we get to the point of, hey, the government does not need to be telling people whether or not they're financially uh, smart enough. And I understand, again, you want, you know, you need to have good credit there, but there's other safeties built into the system besides the government just deeming it by some arbitrary number. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, that's exactly how um, that's exactly how I see it. The government's picking winners and losers. And in this case, they're picking the wealthy and they're not picking the middle and lower class. And I mean, look, everybody can get a tax, uh, can have a, a capital gain tax loss. They could take $3,000 investment loss per year against their um against their adjusted gross income and reduce their taxes. But actually real estate provides more tax breaks. So remember I mentioned I was on some uh, a, a hotel deal in Dallas. Well, uh, because of depreciation, we got to write off more in our taxes last year. Why? Because we were involved in real estate. Can can other people who weren't in that deal, again, deduct from their taxes? Likely not. Um, so there's these, these it, it provides, um, you know, an unfair advantage to the wealthy. There's less competition for funds. The wealthy can keep competing for these deals and get bigger and bigger, but the everyday person cannot. Another thing is like I mentioned CrowdStreet because it's one of the real estate um, platforms for accredited investors. The minimum amount of money to invest is about $25,000 typically in a deal. So while that might be a lot to invest for someone in any given year, you can also make a lot of these investments through an IRA or a Roth IRA. So for example, if you have a Roth IRA and someone who's, let's just say, been uh, contributing, let's say $5,000 to their IRA in any specific year for 10 years, they're gonna have $50,000 in their IRA. They can go ahead, if they beat the accredited investor definition, invest in in these, in these uh, deals. So you don't actually have to have private money to do this. You could actually use your retirement money and put it towards these, you know, these potentially high returning deals or above average return deals. And if you're in a Roth IRA, you don't pay taxes on what you earn. The wealthy have been doing this for a long period of time. Um, but unfortunately, it's not available to the middle and lower class. Yeah, Danielle Zanzalari joining us. Let's have let's let's do some grown folk talk here real quick, though, why that is. Why is it OK for your IRA and those folks to do these investments on your behalf and not OK for you to do it individually? There's a massive industry of financial advisors. Look, I, I want everybody to eat and feed their family. I'm not disputing their industry here, but those folks have lobbyists and the banks like working through them. This pay for your, you know, whoever's managing your IRA to do it or a financial manager to do it, but you can't do it, even though in some cases it could be the same thing because you can't call your financial advisor up and dovetail your IRA depending on what time you have. 
that's a big part of this because then you get lobbying involved. And look, there's two ways to fix this. It's going to be a regulatory fix or a legislative fix. And when you've got a lobbying arm like the financial service industries, that's going to make the legislative fix infinitely harder to do. I completely agree. I mean, that's kind of a broader question, how lobbying really influences politics here. And I absolutely. Well, that's everybody, that, not just finances. But yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. You know, that kind of brings up your earlier, your first argument, which was Main Street versus Wall Street. I think a lot of times people paint um, the financial industry as always money hungry and and not caring about investors. And I actually really don't think that's true. Uh, I mean, while I'm faculty now and do a lot of work in financial regulation and, and on banking, I also worked at both the, the central bank and a private bank. And there's plenty of people that want to do the right thing and genuinely care about people and having a sound financial system. Not everybody's, you know, uh, you know, out for themselves. But I think that you do sometimes have to blend Main Street with Wall Street, so to speak. And this rule keeps them separated. Again, you want Main Street to be able to, uh, you know, grow in and advance in classes. And, and one of the things that I mentioned that um, this piece actually came out right on election day. And I made, I made a mention that, hey, if Republicans gain control of Congress or at least one of the houses, this might advance. And this is great for investors, right? But what's interesting is that Democrats really have not taken up this argument. And I find that interesting because President Biden's all about, you know, inclus inclusivity he wants to reduce income inequality. And this is like one of the easy ways to do this. Allow people to invest in the things the rich are investing in. Stop putting these gatekeeping rules on them. The SEC says, hey, we don't want people who are unsophisticated financially to do this. But really, it's the SEC who's unsophisticated. Daniel Zanzalari. One last way to put a bow on this, because it, look, economics is always tough to talk about because, you know, it's numbers and data points and it's a lot of, you know, big terminology. Part of the investment thing, let's just put this on a real level for a second. You know, if you got somebody that makes 40 or $50,000 a year to the SEC, a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollar return on an investment that barely gets noticed by the bureaucracy, but to a real life family, you know, a couple hundred dollars, thousand dollars, that's an extra vacation. That's a lifestyle change. That's a big ticket appliance. You know, you can pick anything you want. That's meaningful money to people if they could be able to invest at a low level. And yeah, the, you know, the upper ups would all be like, oh, that's not that much money. A couple hundred dollars is a lot of money to people, especially in an economy. We've got the data now where very few people have $500 on hand cash for an emergency. This seems like one of those areas where if you could open up the floodgates for some small time investments, it would actually have a meaningful impact to a wide swath of people like you just talked about equality. Look, everybody could use a couple hundred extra dollars. This seems like one way to maybe let people do it, even if there's a little bit of risk attached, at least they'd have the option of doing it. 
Right. I'm all about options. I, I believe in individual choice for these things. I mean, the, the individual investor can be involved in real estate, not just, you know, buying and holding a property, which is not passive. And uh, I'll scream that in the mountain, you know, owning your own rental business is not a passive way of income. It's a business, but there are ways to have a passive stream of income in real estate. You can, you can own a share of a REIT, which is a mutual fund essentially that, uh, basically buys real estate properties. I'm not giving it the full definition, but that's essentially what it is. So you, you have exposure, it trades in like the stock market. So you can easily, um, you know, access this with 50 or hundred dollars a share, but this particular types of investing in startup companies and real estate syndicates, it allows just diversification of what you're investing in, right? If you're investing in the stock market this year, you've been down 20, 10%, at different points this year this allows a little bit of diversity to kind of help those returns and like you said andrew um it doesn't matter if it's a hundred dollar gain thousand dollar gain it's a gain it's a gain towards retirement it's a gain towards your lifestyle um and it matters and it matters for people in the the lower class the middle class and also the rich and it's just it's just time that the sec allows people to make their own choices they're allowing them to make it in crypto which is so much riskier so much more new than in the real estate syndicate business. It's just, um, it's archaic, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, this is going to be a tough sell to get into the policy realm because a lot of people don't think about it this well. But I really wonder when you have, because this FTX thing is going to be ugly for a while, I wonder if there's going to be an opening to talk about, you know, hey, the stock market is a lot more stable. We should take more controls off. You could funnel people that way. Give folks one or two things when they're having this conversation online or with their friends or if they're talking to a politician in the town hall. Give folks one or two ways to talk about it like, hey, this FTX thing's a mess. This is why we need to clean up traditional investing and let more people do that. Give folks a way or two to maybe discuss and open up that discussion. I'm uh, you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, everything you're saying, I just, I can't agree more and more with, you know, if people are looking for outside returns, well, crypto could provide it, but it could also provide outside down, uh, uh, outsized downturns for your portfolio, but a real estate syndicate, while it might provide a little bit higher returns and, and it could fall, uh, it's much more stable and sound, uh, than a brand new company. But I mean, the, the thing with what's happening with FTX is it's really sad for investors because they got actually frauded out of their money. Um, and it's exposed a whole lot of issues, how some of these very smart tech guys can um, kind of go around accounting practices and no one even notices, not even auditors, not uh, of the company, but it's fraud. And I think it's going to actually shed a bad light because people are going to be looking for more regulation whenever there's a big downturn and loss of money. A lot of people cry that they need more protection, and that's the opposite of what I'd like to see the SEC do with the accredited investor rule. Danielle Zanzalari, we're going to have you back on more often because you're really good at this. <laughs> um, until we do, though, uh, we're going to link to this whole piece. Hey, th this is one of those two. There's a lot of link stuff inside the piece. You're going to want to link through all the links as well. Really get in, do a little homework on this because this is something you need to you know, like any good investment, make sure you're educating yourself. Read the whole thing for yourself. Make your own decision. It's in real clear markets. Let folks know where they can keep up with you and what you have going on until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. So probably the easiest place to get in touch with me is on Twitter, D -Zanz at DZanzalari. It's just my first initial and then my last name. Uh, happy to DM back and forth with you and, and discuss anything financial policy, especially on the accredited investor rule. It's something I'm very passionate about, something I didn't know about until I was in a position 
uh, to want to invest in real estate and I didn't qualify. And then I tried to do everything to qualify because I wanted those extra opportunities that I was not afforded before. So it's something I'm passionate about to get everybody involved in. As someone that didn't grow up in a wealthy household at all, I believe that that you know financial education is really the key. Yeah, and we will continue to talk about these issues. Hopefully get you back real soon on it. Danielle Zanzalari, always enjoy talking to you. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a nice day. Yes, ma'am.